0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Mood Magazine, a new international quarterly publication about music and food. For more information, visit moodmusicfood.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Armand, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on Tuesday, every Tuesday at 12. Well, not if we weren't here last week because we were embarrassing ourselves at Star Chefs. Boom! Anyway, today we're here at Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn! With Jack and Joe in the engineering booth, and as usual, Stas the Hammer Lopez here in the studio. How you guys doing?
3: Good.
1: Good. I just told Nastasia I ran into Indie Jesus in the street.
2: What would you say? You say, "Hey, Indie Jesus."
1: I didn't call him that. No, D- did you have I said, a- "Hey, Dante."
2: Oh, oh, well. You didn't like have a glass of water and try to turn it to wine. Anything awesome like that? <laughs> Next time. Next time.
1: He's not here anymore, though. He left. Yeah, he's gone. that's he's oh, craft. <laughs>
2: all right. All right. So listen. Today we have a very special. Do, are they both going to be on, or or just one? Both.
1: Sweet. They're both here.
2: Sweet. We have uh, we have the, <laughs> the the you know I, what do you call it? the 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 unique group ideas in food. Um, uh, Aki Kamazawa and uh, Alex Talbot, uh, you know the kind of like the what do you call them the o, the OG new tech food folk on the on the on the line on the internet, and they're they're today have released a new book called Maximum Flavor, Maximum, recipes that will change the way you cook. Uh, And if you go and order that thing right now, today's the first day, you can have a shiny fresh copy uh, on your doorstep tomorrow. Or if you still live in a place where there are real bookstores, you could probably go buy it right now. Uh, Welcome, guys. What's going on? (laughs)
3: <laughs> What's going on
2: with you? Uh, it's good to chat. Yeah. So uh, why don't you guys, uh, you know, oh, by the way, you can call in your questions to uh, the Ideas and Food Crew or us if you have any questions, you know, for, for us schlumpy folks over here. Uh 497 That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Before we start with uh, some of the questions, I'm going to, actually one of them references you, so I'll hit you with that later. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? I mean, one thing I noticed when I looked at this book as opposed to the first book is this is a full color extravaganza of a book.
3: Novel idea, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so why don't you talk about uh, talk about it for a minute?
4: Oh, okay. Well, we it. decided that we needed to have photographs in this book because every time anyone opened the other book, they looked at us and went, "Where are the pictures?"
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah people are so people are so visual. The weasels, the weasels. Mm-hmm. Well, what's what's really interesting, uh, you know, from uh, I guess from an outside perspective is that for. Um, you know for many years your blog was known for you know having being very photo heavy having a lot of photos so I guess it probably just was a surprise to people to see something come out that wasn't that way do you know what I'm saying
3: certainly I you mean the, the first book the first book is really a, a handbook for the kitchen um, and without without pictures people are, are you know we're looking for you know what, what's it supposed to look like my am, am I on the right path uh, and I think that's probably the, the big the biggest hiccup we came across with Ideas and Food, uh, the book. Uh, so this one, we, we, we wanted to uh, face that front on and, and photograph the bejesus out of it. And there were supposed to be only, I think, 75 pictures in it, and I think we have probably double that. Yeah, no, uh, it's a, It really helps tell the story.
2: And it's like, you know, it's all all big color, splashy stuff. I leafed through it. It looks great. I didn't get a chance to read it because uh, I saw you right before my ill-fated Star Chefs demonstration. Uh, which is where we, you know, where the cooking issues crew was last week. Instead of doing our real job of being here on the radio, we were at Star Chefs, uh, having things not go our way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that aside, I got to flip through it. It looks great. I can't wait to get mm-hmm. uh, a hold of a copy. But uh, but it's true. It's I looked at it this morning on Amazon. And are, are you guys pro Amazon or anti Amazon, or do you not want to come out for or against on the on, you know in public? Yeah, we're
3: for selling
2: I,
4: you know books. What, we, yeah. Well, no, we. We used to live in Colorado, in the mountains, in the middle of nowhere, and we could not have gotten any books there if it were not for Amazon. So while we are pro-indie bookstores, we are also pro-Amazon. Because sometimes you just can't get things any other way.
2: All right. And then you want to give a pitch for, like, if they already own the first book, like, you know, why should they go get this? It's all new, all different, correct?
3: All yes, new, all different. totally different. Um, you know, the first book, as we said, was, was one that it is it is the house and wise. It is, the, it is, you know, the, 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 thing, the reference material that you'll need and then recipes that support it. Whereas the, this is recipes that you really want to eat. There's a lot of information jammed into each one. And then it's a lot of things to, uh, to really then extrapolate from. So, you know, it, it, it's a great jumping off point, And then it's also just a great eating point.
2: Right. And for people, you know, who aren't necessarily super tech or equipment savvy, although I guess, you know, a lot of people who listen here are, like, there's still going to be a lot in for them, correct?
3: There's yes. fun. In I, fact, the whole point uh, of this,
4: <laughs> as we talk over each other, the the whole point of this book was we had a lot of fun with it. And the science is still there, but it's almost hidden. So it's kind of scattered through the recipes and it's in the head notes and it's layered more into stories as opposed to the first book where the science was kind of front and center. And the recipes were behind that, mm-hmm. There we were more about, like, really, really delicious food and then explaining how we did it.
2: Sweet. Well, Secondly. I can't wait to get uh, a copy of it. I'm sure it's going to do well. Why don't we answer some questions for the folks? Uh, we, have, we get writing questions beforehand. I have a little bit of, a, of a, an advantage over you guys that I got the questions this morning. So, you know, I had a chance to look at it. But, <laughs> but you know, but that said, we're, we're, we're all, we'll all go for it here, okay? So uh, Aaron Will okay. writes in. He said, recently we've been making shrimp stock at our restaurant, Scratch. Uh, and we've uh, noticed that, unfortunately, when we let the stock come to a full boil, a stable form—a foam would form, uh, and it would boil over vigorously. This obviously has never happened to a fish, poultry, or land mammal stock that I have ever made before, and this leads me to hypothesize that there is some sort of stabilizer in the shrimp meat or shells that would cause this foam to form. If there is, could there be a way to use this in an advantageous manner to suit the needs of somebody or some entity? Uh, Also, I never... Got to thank you for giving us a shout-out on the show a while back. Can't wait to get some <laughs> Mofag gear and represent Aaron Will. Well, I mean, I'll just put my two cents in really quickly. One thing I need to know beforehand on the foaming, I mean, is you guys, as anyone knows, if you cook uh, whole uh, crustaceans, especially things like lobsters, they foam like demons. Yeah, uh, and Yeah, I, I, yeah right. right. Yeah, come, I mean, that's my, my, it's my presumption, right? So I would assume that you wouldn't get that much foaming for, uh, if you were buying headless shrimp. Do you know what I mean? But if you were buying whole body shrimp, I would assume that you could get some decent foaming out of it because there's lots of – I'm reminded of a very old uh, like uh, dual language Chinese-American cookbook that I have that one of the recipes uh, calls for like foaming egg whites by hand and then putting it in front of the cooked crab on the plate and and it's called for crab spittle effect in English translation, crab spittle effect. And so you know, it's, right? I mean, it's it's well known that there's all kinds of proteinaceous crap that you know mm-hmm. sea creatures uh, produce, especially crustaceans. In fact, when you have uh, you know animals that produce uh, waste nitrogenous products constantly in aquarium tanks, you have protein skimmers to remove them because otherwise. And the way that they work is by foaming the protein stuff that's there. So my guess is is that there's some sort of uh, protein crap there that comes out. The only other guess I have is that some of the – you know, the shrimp shells are made of a product called chitin, which is one of the most common biopolymers in the world. And it's um, it's a nitrogen-containing um, kind of poly- polysaccharide-like thing uh, that – you know, I use the broken-down form of it called chitosan for um, for clarification and, and other things. But that stuff foams, so maybe you're getting some of that too. You guys ever had any, any issue with uh, this stock or anything to say on crustacean stocks?
3: Uh, I mean – Whole, whole shrimp shells, stock, certainly foam, same with lobster, but we do everything now in the pressure cooker, so for the most part, we're not getting any of that, that boil. Uh, and and we're doing it, you know, again, real fast to concentrate the flavor. And again, the pressure cooker keeps the, uh, the foam, I would say, at bay. Um.
2: Right. I mean, you know, the thing also, uh as opposed to shrimp, let's let's just it's not on the not on topic really, but shrimp as opposed to lobster. So I think like, you know, one of the common problems with a I mean shrimp shell, there's like a look, an amer, like a, a shrimp shell that we get from a farmed shrimp, like even if you cook the hell out of it, like there's only so much crap that's there, right? If you're just using the shell and not the head and all that stuff in terms of I mean it's so paper thin usually and there's not much. Mm-hmm. So I don't really find a lot of problems, not not foaming problems, taste problems. But I do find, and I'm curious about pressure cooking since I haven't pressure cooked this one, if you were to pressure cook like a hard shell lobster, you know how when you overcook a lobster stock to make a bisque, it gets, the only thing, I don't really know what it is because I've never analyzed it, but what I consider to be kind of like a a shell taste, almost like a calcium-y taste to it. You ever notice that? It's, mm-hmm.
3: it's funny you mention that. We uh, we haven't gotten it that way because <laughs> all we use is the head. Uh, Don't use any of the other shell. So we just take the insides.
2: Oh yeah, there you go. Because when you when you make when you're doing like you know uh, an oil infusion or if you're making a stock of, like from straight shells on lobster, like it's like good mm-hmm. good up. You roast them right, and then you cook them up to a point, and then when you over extract them, you're like this crap's done. You know what I mean? It's it like tastes like shells. Yeah, it tastes like shells.
3: Well, yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, if you're making a shell oil, it's it's great. <laughs> but if you're making lobster oil, you probably just want to use the you know the the head part.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So back to your question, Aaron. They're well-known that there are proteins in there. Uh, try the pressure cooker. Um, do you guys believe my story that your pressure cooker shouldn't vent or no? I still believe it very, very wholeheartedly.
3: You don't want it to vent. Why, why would you vent it?
2: No, no. I mean, in other words, like I believe that the pressure cookers that constantly vent to regulate their pressure produce a lower-quality stock than ones like the Kuhn Recon that don't, even though I just had terrible experience with a Kuhn Recon exploding in my kitchen. It was freaking nightmare.
4: Really? Well, you had one
2: explode? Well, here's what happens. There's a, uh, you know how like, you know how, you know how I'm lazy. You know me, I'm lazy. So like, <laughs> you know the the uh-huh. ga- the gaskets deteriorate over time because they're silicone. They deteriorate, and um, and so you know. It's my personal pressure cooker. I brought into work because I needed to do something. And I'm, you know, every day I'm like, oh, I'll rep- I'll replace the gaskets. I'll replace it. You know, next time I'll replace it. Next time, next time. And there's a little mm-hmm. there's a little secondary pressure uh, relief on the top of the pan next to the valve. And uh, the silicone there wasn't sealing properly, so it was always spitting out a little steam. So Piper, who works with me, is like, hey, Dave, it's steaming. Don't you say that ruins the flavor of the stuff? I'm like, all right. So I go over there to start fiddling with it, right? And then, and then <laughs> I'm trying to set the damn thing. So I think maybe there's like some grit in it or something. So I'm trying to set it. I take a, uh, a, a butter knife, the back end of a butter knife, and I go, pap, pap, pap on the top of the thing to mm-hmm. seal it. And I blew it through the lid of the, uh, of the thing. Now, this sucker was full, three-quarters full of rendering, like, full chicken with the fat in it and everything stock at 15 PSI. Like, I'm talking, like... Uh, like like five liters of chicken, six liters of chicken stock at 15 PSI and I, all of a sudden right. I, I punch a quarter inch hole through it and it was like Old Faithful. It was like a freaking geyser. It flies up, hits the ceiling, chicken fat, like everywhere and you know, Piper runs up, he's going to put a, a, a towel over I'm like Piper man, that's like, you know, that's like whatever, you're nading in the ocean to <laughs> raise the tide, like you're, we're done here and like so we just have to sit there for a minute watching the damn pressure cooker vent chicken fat and chicken stock all over the entire lab (laughs) coated with a fine mist of chicken products my dog loved it the dog thought it was fantastic Uh, I I have since replaced the gaskets Uh, so anyway okay uh, next uh,
3: so it, it, it wasn't the pressure cooker that failed it was more of a user error
2: yeah I'd have to go say I'd have to go user error with that uh, yeah I mean first of all like you know just a n- note to Bene out there you know regularly replace the uh, rubber parts in your uh, in your pressure cooker because they do uh, lose their ability to seal over over time this is you know this is not the first time I've had issues like this uh, you know the main gasket around the, around the rim I'm always late in mm-hmm. replacing that one and uh, modern pressure cookers have a safety override where, um, if you look at the lid of a of a modern pressure cooker, there are uh, there are gaps cut into it, and the reason those are there is so that if you build up too much pressure, it will literally extrude the main sealing gasket out of these holes and then vent mm-hmm. out of the thing. But if you don't replace your gasket, they just extrude under normal 15 psi pressure. I, uh, you know, Asbel uh, Ray is back, you know, at Star Chef when he was doing that stuff. I've vented twice in one day coffee – pressure cooking coffee rye beans, uh, rye berries all over his chef whites twice because I didn't replace the freaking gasket. Nice. Uh, yeah. Okay, a little too much information for the folks out there. All right. Next question. Uh, Johnny writes in about uh, about fermentation and about beans. And uh, I don't really have an answer for the beans, so I'm hoping y- you will. Um, he goes, uh, thanks for the egg advice a few shows back. Cracking them on a flat surface Jacques Pepin style has reduced the amount of shell in my scrambled eggs. Uh, I now have some questions about lacto-fermenting vegetables and fruit. Lately, I've been getting some really kick-ass results. (laughs) I'm... Well, kick butt, we'll say. Kick butt results with simple countertop uh, countertop ferments. I did some experimenting and found that even crappy, low-quality, flavorless tomatoes, both canned and fresh, become delicious with some bubbling on the counter, uh, fermenting bubbling. Uh, Also, Mm -hmm. pureed chilies with a bit of salt left to ferment turn into a dynamite hot sauce. That's true. And my underwhelming sauerkraut tastes delicious fried up with some potatoes. Although there's no reason for sauerkraut to be underwhelming. Sauerkraut's inherently delicious. Anyway. Uh, Question, is there an inherently safe slash putrefaction preventing minimum salt uh, percentage for lacto-fermenting fruit and vegetables assuming a normal, in quotes, water content – uh, in the amount of uh, fruit or veg. I've been eyeballing the salt and nothing, you know, st- instead of measuring, presumably. I've been eyeballing mm-hmm. the salt and nothing's turned out inedible, but I would like to be more consistent so I can get repeatable <laughs> results. Uh, I've also tried fermenting fresh corn and it ends up really sour. This is a known fact, by the way. Sour co- Anyway, uh, um, mm-hmm. not so sure what ingredients <laughs> or dishes it'd be good with or added to. Any ideas? Do you have any favorite lacto ferments? Uh, well, sauerkraut actually literally is mine, but boring as that is. Um, can you uh, use them like stocks? Uh, can you use them like stock or does the acidity totally change how do you uh, how do you think about using them as an ingredient right, so um, I'm gonna. It's long. Yes, complicated. But I'm gonna, <laughs> I know I'm gonna let you I weigh is. in. The corn, by the way, uh, I you know, right now, when anyone asks me a fermentation question, I literally just pick up my my copy of uh, The Art of Fermentation by Sandor Katz and just see what because mm-hmm. the research he in does. that is so thorough that you know I just yeah, there's no reason to reinvent the wheels. Sometimes I just go because I'm sure he's researched it. And in fact, he found. Um, I don't know her personally but uh, April McGregor has a a website called Farmer's Daughter and she doesn't sell those uh, on the website but she sells uh, fermented corn uh, in her stand in North Carolina and she's like, yeah, they get really sour. Presumably you're using sweet corn. Sweet corn has a lot of sugar. It will ferment very quickly and make very sour results. Um, But as for salt… You know, and I'm going to let you guys weigh in here because it's, people ask me this all the time, and I always say the same thing: you can do ferments without salt. The problem Correct. is, they're not they're not going to be uh, consistent. And you know, the, the short answer they're not is not that taste good. Well, yeah, I mean, look, like uh, you know, McGee was telling me that there's these crazy amaranth ferments in China that that smell like like the worst smell in the world, but people you know eat it without dying. You mm-hmm. know. Um, my feeling is is that it, you know <laughs> if it gets sour, you're probably safe, and if it doesn't get sour, you're probably not going to want to eat it because some crazy stuff's going to be growing in there. Um, you, you know, you guys, any 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 thoughts there on this on the salt-free sermon? Yeah, go ahead.
3: Salt. So, so, so I mean, I, I'll kick in. I mean, you don't need salt, mm-hmm. and again, that's referencing one one sandor cats as well. But the salt the salt is certainly the the flavoring agent, so we, we want it there to help peak everything. Fermentation certainly, we found fermented foods just taste better. It, it, you're, you're developing flavors, and, the, and, and the, the ingredients are broken down to release uh, more aromatics. So, you know, anything fermented is good for the most part. Anything rancid, that's a whole other story. Um, I, well, salt levels, yeah, it, it ranges. I, I mean, we, what is it? I, I think we've seen as low as 1.5 percent, but. We usually have our salt brines and a way-based brines or something like that, roughly around what five percent, I think.
2: Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty standard. Like you know, uh, not not. But you know, all these things are crazy. It's like some people they they write in and they take into account their theoretical water base for their veg, and some don't. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, is I think only if you are going to do this the same thing a lot, right? Like, let's say you were going to make. Uh, Fifty-five gallons of uh, sour pickles, right? Well, then it behooves you. But to who's
4: get- going to do that at home?
2: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but I'm saying, but if you're going to do it, then it behooves you to get the stuff right. You know what I mean? And right. get, get something to measure right. salinity and figure out exactly what's going on and measure the water where you. Could. But in you know, in reality, at home, I think you know, eyeballing it in general is okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I. Would- yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. look, anyone that's listening to this show, unless you have a very – unless you have a specific dietary restriction, right, knows that I believe that salt is not it is not harmful to people that it's not harmful to, right? So you should probably put the salt level where it tastes good to you. Like that's my feeling. What do you guys think about this?
4: I would agree uh, with that. I think that it depends on how long sort of, you want to keep your pickles too. If you're going to eat them in, you know, relatively quickly – then you don't have to worry as much about the bacteria levels. And I also think that with pickle making it's usually pretty obvious when things have gone wrong. And I think actually Sandor says that in his first book that, you know, if it smells bad, if it looks bad, don't eat it, start over again. But, you know, pickles are it's 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 clear when things have gone awry. Things start growing and things get soft and mushy and as long as your texture's good and your flavor's good, you're you're Good
2: to go. Mmm, soft and mushy. All right. Uh, mm-hmm. his, his, his second <laughs> question is...
3: <laughs> submerging it, though. That, oh, yeah. That was, that was yeah. our biggest problem for the longest. If it, well, if as long it's as you're submerged. underneath the brine.
2: Well, that's why, yep. like, you know, that's why the like the easiest way to do it, if you don't, if you know, is to just vac the crap down and then put it inside mm-hmm. of a second va- a vac bag in case it blows and tie the second bag down. You know what I mean? It's like, boom, yeah. sucker, sucker's insto-submerged. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's... Yeah you know, it's a such an easy way to to get if you have a vac machine it's such an easy way to get a uh, high quality uh I've never tried it just in zipping without a vac but I'm sure it would work but the zip bags will blow once it starts fermenting is the only problem you know a, a good vac actually interestingly a not so good vacuum bag that has slight gas permit you know uh, it can diffuse a slight amount of gas through it they they don't mm-hmm. blow I've never really had one I've had them turn into really tight, 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 tight pillows, but I've never had one explode on me. And uh, and the, the good news about that, too, is you get that nice little kind of pétillon from the, the CO2 that can't leave. Do you ever do that? in the mm-hmm. va- Do you like doing it in the vac bags? We actually don't. You don't like we – We've
3: got <laughs> the old, the old, the jars, weights, boom, done.
2: You don't like the vac? I, I, don't, I,
3: don't, I, don't, I don't like the bubbles.
2: Oh, I love the bubbles. You know, I like anything carbonated. Yeah. If you know me, you love I like anything
3: it. carbonated. Though.
2: Any, any damn yeah. thing, carbonate any damn thing, especially kimchi. I love kimchi with some carbonation in it. You have to like oh, kimchi man, with some carbonation. Oh man, I hate that. In. You hate that? I love that.
4: <laughs> I hate that. I chop it all up so that the bubbles dissipate.
2: <laughs> really? So you're like, you're like, yeah. you're like, you're like putting, throwing a vacuum down on it to pull any CO two out of it right before service. You're like, mm, pull the CO two out.
4: <laughs> <laughs> all you have to do is slice it up because you know once you slice it up, it evaporates naturally. But.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love this. Yeah, thing. no, I'm not a fan. Wow, this is in- in- interesting point of difference, and this just goes to show. Mm-hmm. This is why it's good to make your own crap, because then, you know, if you like it to bubbles, you can make it to bubbles. If you don't, you don't. All right. Um
4: But if you do make them, you can always get rid of them.
2: That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, Johnny's second question. Sometimes I cook uh, dried beans, and despite an overnight soak and long, all capitals, so it must be very long, cook time, several hours, I mm-hmm. cannot get them to finish cooking with a soft interior. Now, here's the kicker. I don't add salt or acid, just cooking them at a boil and uh, then at a simmer in water. I got them from a popular green market venue, vendor that seems like they have a high turnover so it's not like a five-year-old bean could the beans be so old that they just won't cook all the way through or am i just doing it wrong i don't have a pressure cooker and would that solve it well, that's an interesting question i don't know what would cause them to stay hard if you're not adding any acid to it
4: yeah that's weird no i mean all need is seaweed kombu.
2: yeah you put a piece of in there there. your beans
4: help it, it helps tenderize yeah
2: yeah what's the agent mm-hmm.
4: there's you know, I don't have it in front of me, but there's actually an enzyme in the kombu that softens the skin of the beans so and put, helps them absorb water more more easily.
2: So you put it in during the soak?
4: You can put it in during the soap, soak and leave it in during the cooking time, or if you have, like, pre soaked beans, you can always just put it in during the cooking time. Right. It's, like, you know, a two-inch square for every cup of dried beans. You know right. Like the other it's thing, actually in the book.
2: Yeah, nice. <laughs> Go buy the book. Go buy the book. But You know, my only question... <laughs> you know. Um, the one thing, I, I don't know where Johnny lives or what his water quality is like. I mean, most typically... Yeah, that
4: could have something to do with
2: it. Right. I mean, oh,
3: yeah. If he lives in Plano, Texas, he's toast.
2: Why? What's the, what's the pH of uh, water in Plano?
3: <laughs> no, the, the calcium in the water that, down there.
2: Oh, they have yeah. a lot of... Ca- yeah, super hard water, if you have calcium, will strengthen yeah, yeah. the pectin and you're done. You're done. You're done. Well, that's got to be it. It's got to be the water he's using.
3: It's always the water. Yeah. So you know. No, I, that's right. Yeah, super hard water. We we were doing a demonstration down there a number of years ago, and, and we were making a uh, a pectin bath and didn't account for the calcium in the water because we didn't know about it. Uh, and the stuff in, instantly gelled,
2: and it wasn't even sequesterable. You couldn't even hit it with shimp.
3: No, I, I we did afterwards, but the, at first we didn't even didn't, even, didn't, didn't cross our mind to, to sequester the, the water, and then check the we water. Like, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then we. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Johnny. I'm. Uh, I'm going to go ahead here and say that uh, we've discovered your problem. You have uh, hard water, and you're going to want to uh, use a water softener or get uh, like okay. a gallon jug of spring water or something like that. You think we? Got, you think or, we got it?
3: Or or, or add sodium hexametaphosphate.
2: <laughs> yes, that that would be another solution. <laughs> is to sequester your bean water. Although I've never. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It might be the first time any human being has ever said I'm going to sequester my bean water. Uh, I've not
3: done that yet, but I might have to try that now.
2: What, to go, oh, you get, man. <laughs> next time you're in Plano, you're going to go get some water and add some shrimp to it to cook beans? All right.
3: Yeah.
2: All right, sweet. Um, should we take a commercial break and then come back? Yeah. We're going to come back right back with ideas and food, cooking
3: issues.
1: Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. magazine about music and food for its creators not many things can beat a good record and a delicious meal maybe a well-written story or a gorgeous photo well that's all in mood the magazine looks at music and food in a cohesive and unique way with a keen eye to design and high quality writing its contributors are located around the globe and the stories span accordingly Check it out today at moodmusicfood.com. That's moodmusicfood.com.
2: And welcome back. So, uh, what is mood? Just kidding. I'm just messing with you, Jack. Anyway, uh... So, uh, we're back with Ideas and Food. Uh, you still have time to call in your questions to 718 497 That's 718-497-2128. So, the uh, folks at uh, May Street Kitchen, uh, who we met when we, uh, or whom we met when we went up to Harvard, uh, wrote in a question. I think they must have sent it uh, before, but I just got it. They said, hello from the crew at May Street Kitchen. Uh, we are so amped up from watching Dave burn up a bunch of rice at the Harvard lecture. I, when I last time I puffed in a lecture, it, I shouldn't do this lecture-wise anymore. We, uh, for those, uh, you know, we We had an issue and we cleared out a science building at Harvard. Uh, but it did make a big explosion, which was, which was nice. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we are so amped up from watching Dave burn up a bunch of rice at the Harvard lecture that we had to write and say how much we love you guys. It was very pleasant. The bar, the podcast, uh, the blog, everything. It was so fun to see you in action in person, especially Nastasha sitting in the corner like a boss. And honestly, we couldn't think of a better end of the night than watching Dave set off the fire alarm in a cloud of black-brown smoke and subsequently getting Harold McGee to sign our books while sitting on the lawn like a friendly and wise woodland creature. Seriously, we think, of burnt, uh, we think of burnt rice, and it's great. You, I've never heard of McGee described as a woodland creature I like before. That. Woodland creature. <laughs> I'll have to talk to him about that. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, they have a question from two of uh, th- uh, their cooks, Emily and Caden, and uh, uh, the question is, it started when we tried to figure out if the, and this is one where they reference you guys specifically, so I'm going to let you guys just take this sucker and run. You ready? Because they're referencing something that you, that one of your techniques. Uh, <laughs> okay. Emily, Emily and Caden's question, it all started when we tried to figure out if the air in a fridge is wet or dry, and if a thing placed in that fridge will dry out or absorb moisture. We had a peanut brittle on the menu at the time, and we were trying to, decide whether we should keep it in the fridge to avoid it melting it gets hot on a food truck in august or leave it out to avoid it absorbing moisture and becoming horribly disgusting and gummy Uh, we noted that if you're drying out the skin of something that you want to crisp you can put it in the fridge like dave chang does in the momo fried chicken recipe or heston does in his home-cooked version of triple cooked chips that's french fries for real people Uh, I'm kidding British people. You know, whatever. We call them French fries. Uh, (laughs) Other things that you put in the fridge so they absorb moisture. Other things you put in the fridge so they absorb moisture, like on the Ideas and Food blog, Aki and Alex, rehydrate uh, dehydrated beets by putting them in the fridge. What gives? So now we're thinking about the relative humidity versus absolute humidity. I don't know what those things mean, but my staff does. And whether we should be thinking of the fridge as an open system or a closed system. I don't even know what our question is anymore, but maybe you can just (laughs) (laughs) – Maybe you can just wax poetic about humidity and refrigerators and little like for as long as you deem appropriate. All the best, and thanks again for coming to Boston, Irene and Max, and Caden and Emily and Alex, Caden and uh, Olivia and Peter. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So uh, why don't you guys talk about that for a minute?
3: All right. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the beets themselves. You talk about the beets. <laughs> yeah. So we, 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 we pressure cook the beets until they're they're cooked to bejesus. Then we dehydrate them until they concentrate and develop a, a nice dark skin then we, we take them while they're still warm. We actually, there, there's a missing point there. We put them in, in the zip-top bags while they're warm, seal them in the zip-top bags, and then throw them in the fridge so they steam in the bag, in the in the environment. So th- there's you where you same your as your, your, your moisture. So you're just re-equilibrating, oh,
2: right. really. You're just re-equilibrating. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the issues with all, with all food cookery that involves surface phenomenon, so that's frying... Uh, panning, grilling, uh, par dehydrating, anything, is that uh, you develop uh, a situation where the inside – typically, the inside of the food has a much higher moisture content than the outside of the food, right? And so sometimes – and, and, and you know, I don't really, um, you know, the inside, outside of your technique. You know, you'll you tell me about, tell me about. But the sometimes you can form a, a, a skin. That skin is can be then permanent because the cells have collapsed. But you can get moisture back so that they can equilibrate, so that the texture changes back to something that you like, just by letting the moisture come in from the outside. Correct or no? Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. The uh, you typically, and this can be a very good thing for this kind of a technique, very bad thing with fried chicken, horrible with fried chicken. Right. Um, but you know, a, a lot of what cooking is, uh, especially if you want things to last for a while after they're cooked is moisture control and moisture migration from the center of a product to the outside of a product and much time is thought about that especially on the on the pro level this is why people add so much to their tempura this is why tempura is actually not go- a good product this is why it actually is bad like t- tempura i've i've had like some of the supposedly best tempura chefs in the world make tempura, and I've eaten it, and it was it wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't bad, and that's that's very that's hyperbolic. But it's not as awesome a, as it could be because it's it's um the, the 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 moisture balance is shafted. I mean, if you eat it directly as it comes out, you know, yeah, it's good. But I don't know. I don't think I ever prefer it, and it can't last the way that it's made. What do you guys think on tempura?
4: Well, but they like to soak it in sauce. So it's sort of the combination of the crunchy and also the soggy. Yeah. It's not really only about the crisp. It's not my thing. But wasn't the question about peanut brittle?
2: Oh, no. So what they're saying is is that they have a situation where – where uh, look, it, where they put stuff in the fridge and they're having uh, – they want to know whether the, the, the environment in a fridge is adding is, is adding moisture to or removing yeah. moisture from things. So you put it in a Ziploc bag so it's moisture neutral, but it, it adds moisture to the skin by re-equilibrating. In general, yeah. fridges are a uh, – dehi- What? Yeah. I think they're moist. Yeah, freezers dehydrate right? And fridges, you get a lot of recondensation of crap on them. You know, because I th- I, the thing is, like, I think if you... It depends on the fan speed, like I, in, in, a, in some of the pro-fridges I've used that have a fan speed that's too high on the circulation, you can get a real pellicle on the outside. I think, a lot, I think a lot depends on a lot. You know what I mean?
4: Well, it depends on the ingredient, too, I think, because if you're, you know, if you put chicken thighs on a rack, they're going to dry out a little bit. The right. surface is going to dry out, no matter the fridge, but... If you throw peanut brittle in the fridge, the sugar's gonna absorb all the moisture in the air.
2: Right. Well, you know, that's a even like in the sealed they, this is why I'd like you're never supposed to store coffee and, and chocolate and what this in in the fridge. There are several reasons, but but to me the reason isn't necessarily that the sucker's gonna get moist while it's in the fridge. It's that as soon as you pull it out, you're gonna get condensation from the air and you're toasted, unless you live in Arizona. You know what I mean?
3: Mhm. So that too see that? what no, that it makes that makes all the <laughs> sense in the world. Yeah. No, no. It, but again, you know, you know, peanut brittle. Yeah, I would I would use desiccant in a in, in a con- closed container at you know room temperature. Right. Or in the in the truck.
2: No, hundred percent. Yeah, desiccant's the way to go, or vac sealed. You know what I mean? Vac sealed in a hard container, or you know, vac sealed in a uh, in mason jars if you don't have access to a hard container that can hold a vacuum. Hey, here's another one for you on refrigerators and moisture content. If it's some some. Uh, of the hardcore, in fact, I think all the hardcore Japanese sushi chefs, I only talked to one of them, you know, when he was years ago when he came to the SCI. Uh, those guys all have commercial refrigerators and then they've never plugged them in, not one time. Uh, they just throw a giant block of ice into the bottom of the fridge and then keep their fish mm-hmm. in there because they want to maintain the temperature, but they don't want the air circulation to mess with the water content mm-hmm. at the surface. Presumably, I guess they don't want it to – I would say in, the, in a case of fish with very high moisture product, you know, they want to – dry. And, and by the way, you know, now, that we're, now that we're talking about it, you're talking about peanut brittle, which has a moisture content below probably 6 percent, right? Like once it's cooked up, when you say it's like mm-hmm. below 6 and a fish, which has a content probably above 80 or around 80. You know what I mean? 75 to 80. So you know, if the fridge is anywhere in between those things, it's going to shaft both of them.
3: That is true, but peanut butter brittle crusted fish is tasty.
2: Yeah, is I've never tried it for real. So wait, wait, yeah. Wait, so what, No, we
3: did it years yeah. ago. Yeah, I made like a peanut brittle and, and put it on 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 uh, and then baked it in place. Oh, peanut and brittle.
2: And does it does it form like a little snappy like a you know like thing on the outside?
3: Yeah, not not quite as crocante as you'd want, but you get that the nice texture of the uh, the peanut brittle, the the, the the second you know the caramelized the second time. You get the nice toasty notes, and then we, we we smoke peanut brittle, so oh, nice. anything smoked tastes better.
2: Uh, smoked peanuts are in fact delicious. And while we're on the subject of peanuts, I just want to give a shout out to uh, the Virginia peanut. Virginia peanut and the, 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 uh, you know I don't get anything from the Virginia peanut people but if you've never Virginia peanut by the way is a variety it's it's a type of peanut and there's people from uh, you know North Carolina and South Carolina will tell you that the, the the Virginia peanuts that are grown there are just as good if not better than the ones grown in Virginia however it is called a Virginia peanut that's all I'm going to say about that but Virginia peanuts you guys play with Virginia peanuts at all
4: No, we have not, that I know of. Holy (laughs)
2: crap. You need to go buy yourself a high-quality batch of Virginia peanuts because once you have a Virginia peanut, you're like, I can't believe I've been eating this other dreck. No offense, planters. I can't believe I've been eating this other dreck for so long. Virginia peanut is just a superior product. Taste texture you know how like a really good frankfurter has that snap when you bite into it and you're like damn that's what a good frankfurter tastes like you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. as soon as you bite into one of these giant virginia peanuts a good one that's properly roasted and everything it's like pop it snaps it's so awesome virginia peanuts Smoke those suckers. Yeah, get some Virginia peanuts. I got an easy one here for you, uh, Mike uh, Chaczewski. By the way, Mike, thank you for phonetically writing out your name. At first, I thought it was like some strange name that. I can, he's, oh, he's helping me with the phonetics because he writes Chevsky. Mike Chichesky writes in about ham hocks. Hello, everyone. Question about cooking ham hocks. I usually braise uh, in a typical uh, mirepoix slash water stuff uh, my ham hocks so that the meat gets tender enough that I can pick it off the bone and shred it. However, I find that much of the smoky, salty pork flavor is too often leached into the braising liquid. Do you have a recommended cooking method which will render the meat tender but not rob it of its characteristic uh, smoke and flavor? Thanks, Mike Chichesky. Yes, Put that sucker in a bag and cook it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you might want to add a little bit of liquid because it takes an unbelievably long time to uh, render out collagen if there's not a little bit of excess moisture um, in with the product. Uh, but it does it does not take much. Uh, and
3: uh, pressure steam it actually, so it'll be the fastest way.
2: Oh yeah, that's you true. Pressure.
3: Yeah. So you put it uh, the hawks into you know a bowl inside your pressure cooker. And then and do it then do it that way. You'll have them in forty five minutes of perfectly broken down, tear the Jesus out of them, and you go from there. But they'll be salty. Bang. I mean, this, they, they they will be salty. be salty.
2: Yeah, but if you're gonna shred it and use it as an ingredient, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying?
3: Yeah.
4: Do you, do you remember when they used to sell? I'm dating myself here, but they used to sell those plastic bags full of seasonings, and you would like stick your pork chops and some liquid in them, and tie the bag shut and bake them in the oven.
2: <laughs> is that like not, Is that like shake and bake? <laughs> Is it some sort of it shake was and the bake the variant? At the same
4: time, a shake and bake, but it wasn't because it was sort of like this this braise, and the bag would puff up in the oven, and it would just know, anyway.
2: That sounds I didn't fun. Make those well, <laughs> you know, when I when I was a kid, you know how like every twenty years or so there's a renaissance of paper bag cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and I have paper bag uh, cookbooks that date back to like the teens. Um, you know, Alexis Sawyer, the famous, uh, English, uh, chef, well, French English chef who wrote the gastronomic regenerator in the 1800s and was kind of like, you know, extremely well-known. MFK Fisher loved his stuff. His grandson, I think it's in the teens, wrote a book on paper bag cooking that I own. So that comes back. So the only bag stuff I used to do is we used to do, I used to do paper bag chicken like once a week. Like that was my jam. When I was a kid in the <laughs> 70s, like that was uh-huh. like, you know, once a week, like I would handle dinner and I would bust out the paper bag chicken, you know, complete with, you know, all the 70s crap you had. in I would rub it with the butter like you're supposed to and put the, mm-hmm. you know, crappy, you know, curry powder from the, from the Grand Union on top of it and shove that sucker in a paper bag and go you know that was my stuff back then and brownies no one messes with my brownies man those are the things Mm -hmm. I cooked when I was a kid Um,
3: when are you going to mix brownies
2: well here's the problem now that I'm older and I think more about it it's like you know what kind of brownie do you want do you want the dense brownie are you a dense or a fluff right
4: dense chewy I like chewy
2: okay are you a cocoa powder or a chocolate brownie I'm a mix I used to hey, hate cocoa powder I was a- ch- I was a full chocolate brownie because that was my my great grandma, my grandma's recipe was a chocolate brownie, and then mm-hmm.
4: I like cocoa
2: yeah, right. I learned later about the cocoa brownie. I don't like hundred mm-hmm. percent cocoa brownie because the texture is always weird to me on a hundred percent cocoa brownie. I guess I could just add more fat, whatever I don't know, so now I do a mix anyway, so you I like,
3: like the <laughs> robo inclusion actually yeah. into the brownie you like what? A Rollo inclusion. Rolo, to a you go. push Rollos into the top Rolos of the brownies the before you bake them.
2: I have not heard the word or thought about Rollos in decades. Rollos? Do oh. they do they still make Rollos?
3: They sure oh, do. Yeah. we yeah. We we do I damage to
2: in this house. All right, listen, listen. Stas is a is a candy aficionado. What are your thoughts on Rolos? Listen. Yeah, pro. You're pro Rolo. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Ideas in food have found something <laughs> that Nastasha enjoys. The Rolo. I might, might have to go out. Do you okay? Do you like the fr- do you like frozen candy? Remember the Charleston chew? you used to freeze mm-hmm. those suckers. All right. Oh, and then yeah.
3: Shatter it. Yeah. Hey, have you powdered Charleston chew with nitrogen?
2: No. Good.
3: Wouldn't that be awesome?
2: I <laughs> would be good. Well, now I'm thinking about Rolos. Would Rolos be good frozen?
3: Yeah, they'd be able to Yeah, they're good. Apply. Yeah, that's we but really they'll break
2: those, your teeth. We? Yeah, well, you know, that's why, that's why you can go to the dentist and get new ones. That's what Stas does all the time. She, like, put, puts her dentist through, uh, kids through college every day. The, kid, the, the dentist can have a new kid every day and put it through college the way Stas gives the person money. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, we have another question in. Uh, by the way, uh, thanks for that pressure cooker tip. I don't know why the hell I didn't think of that. We were just talking about pressure cookers and everything. I didn't think of pressure cookers. This is why it's useful to have uh, guests on the program. You know what I'm saying? I provide nothing. Uh, what? Something. Oh, anyway, so we have another question in. Uh, Nick, who's writing in from Seoul, Korea, uh, has a couple of questions, a couple of statements, and then a question about halloumi. I actually like halloumi, but you know, in my neighborhood, uh, well, we'll talk about it in a second. Okay. Uh, thanks for addressing my tofu <laughs> questions a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the tofu soup, which you uh, suddenly developed a hankering for, is uh, sundubu uh, guy. I cannot pronounce any uh, words in any language okay. ex- except for German. Uh, which I actually only Austrian German did did I tell this story on the air I went to Austria uh, a little while ago and I told I said this story on the air yes anyway yeah so I can do Austrian accents because I listened to too many Arnold Schwarzenegger movies growing up anyway uh, Dubu is a Korean iteration for what is known in the West as tofu, and uh, a Guy's umami-rich soup, often made with feisty elements and served in boiling clay pots. Oh, by the way, I love myself. The clay pots aren't my favorite. I love the tulsoot, the uh, the the stone bowls. I have nine mm-hmm. of them. I have nine of them at my house, and they like if it wasn't for liability issues, every Applebee's in or TGI Fridays in the U.S. would be serving everything in these hot stone bowls because hot stone bowl plus a little bit of oil, some rice, anything you have in your fridge and an egg on top is delicious. Mm -hmm. Delicious. (laughs) Um, I'm surprised that those things aren't... Is
3: there a brand of of hot stone balls that you like?
2: Um, Well, no, I've never had a... I've never seen a brand on them. I just, you know, I go... you dot
3: com.
2: To yeah, you go in there and you buy them. There's, there's there's, three fundamental sizes, and I have like some of each, like the big one. And, you know, I've only ever had one fail on me, and it didn't 100% fail, but it's developed cracks. I can still use it if I have to. But they develop an amazing kind of patina over time. Um, I, you know, the, my standard procedure, they're made of a rock that may or may not contain asbestos uh, that they call, I, I, I think, like, <laughs> <laughs> Serpentine or something like this, and uh, you know, you put it on your burner, and literally, I put it right on my burner, and I just shoot it with an IR until it hits uh, 600, 615 Fahrenheit. Then I kill all the burners and just ladle a little oil into them, smack the rice in, and done. I mean, literally, like, if someone's, if like a bunch of people are coming over. And, you know, I just need something to be good now. I do the quick cook on my rice cooker, 20 minutes out. While that's cooking, I blast out, like, you know, whatever I have in my fridge. I'll cut it up, make some sort of quick sauce, bang, done. Like, everyone should own a set of the hot stone bowls, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, okay, so back to the question. Um, Oh, but that technique with the burning rice (laughs) doesn't work as well in the clay pots because the clay pots can't hold nearly as much uh, energy as those stone bowls can. Um,
4: Okay. Okay, you don't Uh, get the crust.
2: No, no. Not with rice. I mean, look, they're great. I like. The, I have a couple of the clay pots, too, but I, I thought I could get them because they're like a third of the price or less of the stone, and I thought mm-hmm. that like I could get away doing you know the uh, the rice trick in the clay pot, and it just wasn't the same. So then I was like, well, I'll take the clay pot so that my guests can have the crunchy rice. I was like, you know, crap on it. I will just go buy more stone bowls. <laughs> and So that's what I've done. Um, okay, so then he adds, I've just ad- uh, landed uh, Andrea Nguyen's book. Do you have that book on tofu? Is that good?
4: Yes, that's a
2: good book. Okay, uh, and the book of tofu, the shirt leaf one, the famous shortleaf leaf one, uh, is en route. Once I get my basic tofu skill, uh, tofu making skills down, I hope to experiment with mixing in some non traditional flavors into the soy milk, as well as working in some textural surprises. I also look forward to making tofu skins, which I've done. That is great. I, you know, what I really the amazing thing about uh, making, um, you know, tofu skins, Yuba, is. Uh, is the difference in the first couple skins and the t- tasting them as they go down. I've never had to do it kind of uh, en masse. Like, I've never done it for an event. I just do it for myself at home. But, like, tasting the difference in the sheets as they come off, isn't that kind of like a, like a fun, fun, awesome thing to do? You guys, you guys like that, right? That's awesome, no? I mean, I mean there's no I mean, we've, awesome. met,
3: we've, we've messed with milk skins. We don't sit around and make tofu skin.
2: No? So Stuff's good.
4: I, well, we haven't yet. What, might have to be Yeah, you sh- you should do it. <laughs> we will be shortly
3: apparently.
2: You should do it uh like the first couple that come uh, off are like a much darker color and they have a completely different flavor because of the first stuff I guess it settles up to the top and then they change as they as they go down and um you know just like you know warm with some uh You know, some sort of salty crap put over the top of them. They're delicious. Okay. Anyway, Um, I also (laughs) forward to making tofu skins, cut the way handmade soba is sliced. They make wonderful gluten-free noodles. I never thought about that. And I've never seen one chunk of tofu that's not stored in water here in Korea. I think every commercial, everywhere, every country, people store it commercially in water. I just happen to like to not do that. I happen to make it right before I'm going to eat it and then I just eat it without ever leaching all of the stuff out with water. Uh, My guess here is folks uh, like their tofu mild and subtle. Uh, I have another question for you today. That was just a statement. I have another question for you today. Can you explain the science behind grilling cheeses such as halloumi or finish? And it's going to kill me. Lai pie justo. Uh, which I don't. I'm not familiar with that. I'm familiar with halloumi, <laughs> and uh, and oh, you might not be familiar with this because if you don't live in an area that has lots of Latin markets, uh, queso queso para is a version of uh, queso blanco, which is firmer even than queso blanco, and you can deep fry that sucker without a crust. It's even more kind of resilient than uh, halloumi is. But anyway, uh, what keeps them from melting when heated, or or would it be possible to achieve this non-melting property with other cheeses? Thanks, Nick. Um, so the, the main the main thing about halloumi is that uh, they cook the ever loving crap out of uh, out of halloumi, um, and so a lot of the water is out of it uh, when it's done, and then they salt the hell out of it. So I think that's the main function of the stabilization of halloumi, which I, I happen you know I like I like it a lot. But first they they do um, after they make uh, the curd the initial curd so halloumi i believe is renneted that's what i could get off of the internet it's renneted and then they cut the curd into small pieces like you know uh, very fairly small pieces and then they cook it um, to like uh, 90 – like in the 90s Celsius and then uh, dump whey on top. They they heat the whey to pull the proteins out so they can make some ricotta-like thing. And then uh, they heat it in, in, in this and press the crap out of it, like press the ever-loving crap out of it, heat it, and then put the blocks in salted whey. So like all of those things are like hyper-stabilizing the cheese and giving it that kind of rubbery texture. Whereas queso blanco um, is – uh, acid coagulated, but then also acid coagulated very hot, and then salted while it's hot, which means that it's going to be giving up a lot of its moisture. And I think that that's basically all there is to it. I don't think there's any way to make an actual cheese unmeltable unless you've cooked the curds before you pressed it out. You guys ever made a cheese? Un- well, I, okay, you could make a, you could Activa. do it with we gels. It. Mozzarella you, noodles. Uh, right, you're using a, but you're 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 what you did it with regular mozzarella. Why don't you
3: describe the process? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we, uh, we puree mozzarella with a little bit of ricotta, and we add Activa. Originally, we started with YG, uh, which gives it a nice cheesy note to it. Again, that's the addition of the yeast extract to the YG. Right. Uh, you can actually use TI, uh, and then we, we, we spread it thin on acetate sheets, let it set overnight, and then you can cut the noodles, and they you can boil them. Uh, and you get these beautiful, again, you cut, you cut them like tagliatelle. So we make mozzarella tagliatelle. Um,
2: so it's just as stable as uh, as like the gelatin uh, the gelatin noodles are the ones that are uh, set with gelatin and, and uh, ti.
3: I would think so. Yeah, I mean, we've we, again you just you've got they're 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 awesome. We've got a nice little al dente bite to them, but it tastes just like mozzarella. Uh, and then we did it with we did it with feta too, and they made feta cubes. So we made you know and and we're able to you know saute you know big chunks of feta. Deep fry, deep fry them, stuff like that.
2: Right, so what they're talking about is uh, an enzyme, transglutaminase, and transglutaminase has the property that it covalently binds uh, proteins together. In this case, uh, primarily, I'm assuming you're using whole milk ricotta, not the actual other stuff so there's a lot of casein present yep. uh and the casein in fact casein the protein casein from milk is the protein that's added to uh most uh the, the activa that is most used uh in um in the biz is activa rm which is a, just a combination of activa the enz- uh, or of transglutaminase the enzyme and of uh, casein milk protein so it's just casein on casein action it should wor- you said it does work with rm right
3: it, it works only gen, not as much. And it, we, we use YG. Right. It was designed for raw dairy applications. And then we in a pinch, we did TI. The TI works as well because, again, we're pureeing it in. So you don't need a protein bridge like you would have in RM or even in the YG. I'm,
2: but, su- I'm super yeah. surprised that uh, the RM doesn't work because it's just more casein. I wonder why.
3: No, but that, what, it, it doesn't work as well because there's half as much transcontaminase in the guy.
2: YG has a high level Ti. – OK. So here's the deal. TI is – and I don't know if they still have a kosher app on it because remember you can't have a kosher RM because it's milk. And so they assume that you, it's milk protein. So they're assuming you're binding meat with it and you can't bind meat with milk. That would be a kosher no-no. But they made TI, which is just transglutaminase and maltodextrin. TI has a higher enzymatic activity per gram than RM does. But I did not know that YG also has a higher enzymatic activity.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's hundred uh, parts per million as opposed to fifty hmm. for the for the RM. And so, and
2: you don't want to double up on the RM because you start getting uh, off off blah blahs or something, or, or just then. You no, had, I,
3: again, it, I don't think it even crossed our mind. Really, is what it was. I mean, we, we so we stumbled across RM, and we started, it started years ago. With, we wanted to make flourless ricotta, nudi or gnocchi. Right. Uh, and and we we were we're working with that and we you know called the folks at Hashimoto and chatting with them and said we're doing this uh, we're going to try it with RM and they're like well all right, we've got this new product out there called YG it was designed for dairy applications blah blah blah
1: mm-hmm.
3: I'm not very patient so they, they were going to send us to YG but I already had some RM so we started playing with it and the the RM sets up nicely but the YG sets up a little bit more firmly uh, and it has a has a a, a more uh, a fuller flavor. And that full flavor is actually coming from the yeast extract that's also part of the YG formulation that was designed for the dairy applications.
2: Mm, Cool. Uh, By the way, back to – I don't recommend using RM, which is a casein uh, protein helper on uh, gelatin. I find it doesn't set as well when you're doing the gelatin noodle trick with the RM, presumably because you really just want to link gelatin to gelatin and not gelatin to casein. I don't know if you guys have also had that uh, experience.
3: We have actually not gone not gone deep into the the gelatin noodle thing because I don't know why. I think we just we, what we saw we saw it's it was done. A it's very other hours. Right. So yeah. so,
2: so not uh, not Harold McGee. We have a question in for hard water, but uh, William McGee at Los Necko writes in and is listening and says, "I live in Plano." Texas, are there any are there any times cooking or using hard water is beneficial? Sure, making uh, making alkaline noodles, uh, it can be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is there anything else? Cooking Uh, cooking cooking broccoli so it doesn't get mushy. I mean, yeah. Maybe.
3: What else? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Not much. (laughs) I got nothing. Yeah, I mean, but no, unless 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 you're just encapsulating things and you're just dropping things right into it.
2: Right. I mean, uh, most hard water is probably fairly basic, right? So it may be good for, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know it's, it's alkaline and hard water that was the original well water used to make the noodles that were then substituted later for consway. But I don't really know the pH of the water in Plano. I don't know. So it might not even be helpful for the, for the noodles because the, the noodles isn't a calcium thing. The noodles is really a pH thing. Uh, so probably just stopping broccoli from getting mushy or something like that. Right? Anyway. Um, oh, Aaron Will wrote in saying, Whole shrimp was used. We have induction only, so not a huge problem. Just curious. I'll push for a pressure cooker for many reasons, especially after you know hearing the other tips about ham hocks and whatnot. Uh, I got mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nastasia's giving the snack smack, smack, smack up. Um, Here's I got some questions in, though, that these guys are going to want uh, answered. Uh, Chris McDaniel writes in, uh, any ideas for making caviar, in quotes, i.e., I guess a fake caviar, with okra seeds? You guys ever done anything with okra seeds? I guess maybe making them using the mucilage format?
4: Interesting.
2: Yeah, I have not.
4: Uh, we've never done it. I, I mean, I would imagine that you would soak it in soak the way you, I mean... I wonder if you could take dried okra seeds and soak them the way you soak like basil seeds or something like that.
2: Oh, and get them to puff up, get them to hydrate and puff up like mm-hmm. that?
4: Get them to hydrate and give them a different flavor and kind of, you know, or like mustard seeds. You'd make a. But yeah. I think you'd probably have to start with dried seeds to start, you know, because how are you going to. That's interesting. We'll have to play with that.
2: Yeah, yeah. We'll give
3: it a. No, I mean, uh, the, the, the okra seeds, they. they uh, I mean, we've played around. I mean, you, if you look at them years ago, we, we kind of cut okra up and looked at it, and it looks just like caviar. So you can mm-hmm. kind of cook a, a, a stew of fresh okra seeds. They get a little slimy and stuff like that. Again, it's just the what kind of flavor do you want?
2: Any way to kill the so slime? It's, it's, I exclusively eat okra, either fried whole or pickled. I never use it as a thickener. I'm not a big slime master. I'm not big on the slime.
3: <laughs> I, I could have sworn I saw you wearing that t-shirt.
2: The slime master? Well, different kind, of different, different kind of slime. Xanthan. I like, you know, yeah, Hand me some xanthan. I'll snot up any any sauce you got. I'll turn it to snot. Two seconds with xanthan. That's my specialty. Oh, my goodness. uh, Jonathan Panzerman writes in, can you suggest a good stirred cocktail using blueberry for a large group, perhaps mostly advanced prep? Any tips welcome? Stir cocktail, almost always you're going to want to clarify them, so uh, hopefully you have an ability to clarify blueberry juice. Blueberries are usually fairly low on bricks and acid, so you're going to need to do probably a pre-chill on it unless you – uh, dope it with so much sugar that you can use it as a simple syrup, but then you're not going to have as much blueberry flavor in the finished product. We used to do one with uh, mezcal, uh, lemon, and uh, I think it was lemon, mezcal, lemon, and uh, blueberry, and a couple other things called malinche that was good. But you guys ever done a stirred with blueberry?
3: No, we've done. No, we've had muddled, <laughs> muddled with blueberry, which is you know mm-hmm. like, a, like a blueberry mash. So it's already been marinated up.
2: Yeah, another problem you're going to have with blueberries is I hope you're not trying to get that dark blue color because sucker's going to turn purple as soon as you go acid, uh, and you're going to go acid because the blueberries already contain their own acid. Um, but you know, I would try. I mean, that's what we we used to do uh, a light a lighter mezcal uh, mixed with tequila, blueberry, a little bit of sugar to augment because the bricks isn't so high on that, and that's it. Stirs very well, but it requires you to have a centrifuge. Otherwise, you could crush, muddle, strain. Um, but you know in a stirred cocktail the, the big thing is you don't want it to be a, a soupy mess you want it to be nice and uh, clear um, okay also uh, Christian uh, spinilla wrote in have you guys been following uh, you know they're gonna rip, rip me off the air in a minute but you, you know you guys uh, are familiar with the uh, with the controversy over uh, carrageenan and uh, acid right you guys been I, I get I get bothered about this Quite a quite a bit, you, you know. So, for those of you listening out there, there was some research, uh, and it's, it's been around a long time, that you don't want to uh, use carrageenans in high acid systems that are heated uh, for a long time. And the reason being that the carrageenans can be degraded, and that degraded carrageenan may be uh, may cause uh, may have some. Carcinogenic potential over time, and maybe an irritant to the stomach. It's called degraded uh, carrageenan. There's a more technical term, but I don't forget. Mm-hmm. it. Yep. Uh, and then there's uh, there's uh, this this it's group called Cornucopia something that's been putting out all of these scientific papers. I have a link to it, which you can you know look on the tweets. Someone tweeted it to me uh, that you know there's a, a new kind of push out against carrageenan and that you shouldn't use carrageenan. And let me just say this. Uh, the the work that was being put out there is kind of the, the worst kind of scientific bunk. I haven't had the time to figure out whether or not their actual points are right Wrong, but the method of presentation is uh, leads me to believe that the stuff is wrong. They, for instance, use as scientific evidence that someone said, "I stopped eating carrageenan and then I stopped having the farting problems." You know, things like that. You know, uh, (laughs) so kind of like post hoc ergo propter hoc arguments for the efficacy of removing carrageenan from your diet, and they uh, they focus almost exclusively on the research of a of a certain doctor, Tabakman who has had an axe to grind on carrageenan for a long 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 time and i think you know one of the things is that science is really really like real science not like you know like you know you know what we you know what we the people who are talking here we mm-hmm. u- we use the results of science and you know we're voracious i'm, I'm talking for you now sorry voracious like consu- okay. consumers of this sort of thing but actual science is uh, a lot different and you know it's extremely hard work and it's a lot of boring 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 keeping track of notes and 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 really putting in the time to get your results right and the key thing to being a really good scientist is to not Start with, uh, with the feeling that your conclusions, your hypothesis is correct. You really have to test your hypothesis and all of the work that uh, Dr. Tabakman uh, has done that I've seen has led me to believe that she is completely colored by her uh, – her, 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 her mind is completely colored by her preconceived notions that carrageenan is this uh, you know evil thing. And let us not forget Mm -hmm. that most of the carrageenan we eat, we eat in extremely small quantities. In fact, that is the reason carrageenan is used in dairy applications is because it can be used in extremely small quantities. Have you guys been following this sort of thing or heard any like recent anti-carrageenan rumblings? And by the way, it could be the worst thing in the world. I just – I haven't had a chance to back it up. I just can say that – the writing about it is, is, is poorly done, and it's done in a junk science way. Why don't you, why don't you guys have the last word on Karaginan? And before you do it, I'm going to thank you for coming. I really enjoyed having you. I hope to have you again. And I know the book is going to do extremely well. Go out and buy it, everyone. Now, your last words on Karaginan.
3: Last words on Karaginan. Before I give that, tomorrow we will actually be in New York City at the 92nd Street Y at 7 o'clock with a cooking demo So and book signing. So if people want to join us, they can come see us in person.
2: Where do they, where do they, they get tickets?
4: What's tickets that? are on the YMCA's website, 92nd Street
2: Y. All right, so go to the 92nd Street Y. Upper East
4: Side. Mm-hmm.
2: Shell <laughs> out, shell out, whatever. What does it cost for them to go see it?
3: $25. Bucks,
2: I think it's I think. $25. $25? T- that's like what it costs to go to a movie and popcorn now. Please, go to the 92nd Street <laughs> freaking Y, you know, and uh, go see these guys uh, uh, tomorrow. Okay, now, carrageenan.
3: carrageenan. Uh We just started seeing the rumblings of it. The the funny thing is, is carrageenan and acid, really, they don't get along at all. So... I guess that's my, my my biggest question. There is 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 why why are they mix so them together very often together,
2: right? But yeah, you know, but the, well, the point the point is the only time it could ever really be uh, an issue if you if you know if the if the degraded carrageenan argument is right is if you tried to make a high acid system with a boatload of carrageenan and the only way to do mm-hmm. that would be to overload it with carrageenan so that the carrageenan go- doesn't get obliterated by the acid, which you would so never you're
3: eating way too much carrageenan anyway,
2: right? Which you would never do, which you which you right, would so that, never do, right. You know, and so, and their the, the other argument is that you know that the carrageenan can get degraded in your stomach to become degraded carrageenan is bunk because the, there's you know a very limited transit time and and bless you and and you. You, and you need a certain amount of heat in order for the degradation to take place. You're not getting acid hydrolysis of carrageenan at body temperature, but in, in the transit time that it's in your in your stomach. But you know that's that that. Don't. That's just me reading the scientific literature. Don't take it to mean anything. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so,
3: so when, when you when you dive deep into this one, please let us know what the answer is. All right, cool. What you find. Cool.
2: All right. Thanks so much. It's been a good time. Hey, Cooking issues. A, it was A pleasure. Thank, Thank you. All you. Alrighty. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. All right. Cool. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
1: Bye.